Uh, so today's reading is 1 Kings chapter 21, which you can find on page 508 of your church Bibles. So starting at verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen, why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down and meet Ahab king of Israel who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have roused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. 
he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out, of, out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Oh, thanks very much, Sarah, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Cam Maxwell, if we haven't met. I'm uh, the campus pastor here, and uh, it's great, great to be with you this morning. And it was also uh, good this week hearing back from TAFE that uh, we have permission to try a few different heating types. So we have just a couple here today. I'd love to hear your thoughts if you're sitting over, especially near that heater. Let me know if it's any good. If you get sunburnt tomorrow, let me know. Uh, we might go a different direction. Uh, we do have another type of heater on order. We'll see how things go. There's only some... There's only so much we can do in a room this size, but we thought it'd just be nice to try a few things, uh, add a little pockets of warmth if we can. So see how we go, and uh, do let us know if you think uh, it's worth getting some more. Um, well, today we uh, come to the end of our series in 1 Kings. It's uh, sort of flown by for me, I'm not sure about you. Um, I hope you found it helpful. Uh, it's, I think, been a uh, really helpful part of God's Word to look at. Uh, all of our sermons are up online, and if you uh, have a chance to go back and catch up, it's a good thing to do. Um, and... As we come to the end of a series, if you haven't done this already, I'd encourage you to go back and read all of 1 Kings. Uh, you hopefully now have some of the, um, uh, the highs and lows to look out for, some of the features to be aware of, uh, and it's a good thing to do as we kind of come to the end of a series to go back and see uh, what we've learnt uh, under God. Um, and if you found, like me, that uh, this has been such a helpful part of God's Word, and you're a bit sad that 1 Kings is coming to an end... Don't worry, uh, there's always two kings uh, just around the corner, and I think we'll uh, hopefully come back and look at that sometime next year. Um, the passage that Sarah just read for us, though, in 1 Kings 21, it'd be good to keep that open or open up the Bible next year as we look at it together. It's a pretty rough story, isn't it? Uh, it's a kind of a, a bit of a low point to finish our series on, uh, but actually that's just kind of the theme of 1 and 2 Kings. Things just keep getting worse in Israel. And I think, I'm pretty, I think I'm right in saying that uh, this chapter is pretty unusual in 1 Kings uh, because so far the whole book has really had spotlights on kings uh, and prophets. It's, it's kind of all international politics and uh, what's happening on the throne. Um, this chapter is unusual because it features just an ordinary guy. Um, I think I'm right in saying that Naboth is the first character named in the book who isn't connected somehow to the throne uh, and is not a prophet. I could be wrong, as you read back and look through 1 Kings, let me know if I've missed a detail there. But this passage stands out because Naboth is just an ordinary guy. And he stands up to Ahab, uh, the worst king Israel has had. Now, of course, the story of an average bloke with uh, great integrity and uh, very firm principles, someone like that standing up to governments who's trying to take his property, uh, there is something about Naboth that I think should really resonate with Australians uh, because it's basically the plot line, isn't it, of Australia's favourite movie, uh, The Castle. Now, uh, this movie, I realise some of you weren't even born when it came out in 1997. You've probably never, never even heard of it, other than your dad making quotes around the dinner table or something. Uh, some of you may have moved uh, to Australia from other parts of the world and you don't know uh, this movie at all. Uh, or you have tried to watch it and try and work out what's the big deal and just found it very odd. Uh, it's, it's a great movie. Australians have apparently voted this our favourite movie of all time. So uh, there you go. I'm aware as well, just mentioning the castle here means about half of you are going to be uh, dropping your favourite lines over morning tea later, asking the, the servers, oh, what have you done with this style? What do you call this style? Um, or perhaps standing around our heaters and admiring the great serenity. Uh, there's plenty, plenty of good stuff there. 
Um, if you've never watched The Castle, uh, it is probably worth watching. Uh, if nothing else, it helps you understand Australians uh, and, I think, how much we love the idea of the little guy having a fair go, uh, getting a fair go, standing up uh, to the big guy, uh, the Aussie battler, picking a fight with government and, of course, photocopiers. Um, I, I think the fact that The Castle is a national movie tells us how much Australians love justice. We care about justice. Because if you think, like, if The Castle finished at the end with Daryl Kerrigan and the family losing their house, it's a terrible movie, isn't it? Who would want to watch that? It's not inspirational, it's not fun. It's just a bit too much like reality if that were to happen. I think we love the castle because we know that the little guy winning, it doesn't really happen that much in our world. Uh, we know the world is so full of examples where the little guy gets crushed, uh, just like Naboth in our story today. Uh, chapter 21 of Kings, it, it features uh, Naboth, I think, as if to say, this is just what life is like under a terrible king for the average person. When the king walks away from God, this is what it's like in Israel for an average person. Let's just pick one. Let's just pick Naboth. Uh, more than that, I think this chapter helps us see how God does respond to this kind of injustice. And because we all love justice being done, I really hope this chapter will be a comfort to us uh, in a world that's full of injustice and actually an encouragement that, yes, God does really care for our world and especially care, uh, God especially cares for those who suffer under injustice. So uh, let's have a, a bit of a look at this story. And it's not actually about a vineyard. Um, I mean, it, it is about a vineyard, but there is far more going on. And let's just have a look at verses 1 to 3, which sets up the whole story in a way that I, think, uh, I hope will be helpful. Now, for one thing, it's just worth pointing out, the narrator is very careful to, to mention that it's a vineyard uh, and uh, like, that the, Ahab wants to turn it into a vegetable patch. Now, just the details, right? But you think, well, what does that add to the story? Why aren't we just told that someone had some land and the king wanted it? Why, why vineyards? Why vegetable patches? Does it add anything? Those details uh, mean anything? I think possibly, actually, um, the vineyard, all through the Bible, is often how God speaks of Israel. Uh, the vineyard is often a metaphor for the nation of Israel and a vegetable patch that Ahab wants to create. Now, I'm quite thankful on this point for commentators who point this sort of thing out. Uh, in fact, if you ever hear me say anything uh, very insightful, uh, there seems to be impressive insight into the passage, normally it's because I've read someone else with impressive insights, not usually me. Uh, and this is one such occasion. The commentators are very helpful at pointing out that in the Old Testament, the only other place you read the phrase a vegetable patch is referring to Egypt. It's referring to Egypt. You put those two things together, you realise it's possible to read too much into this, but it seems that those details are very selectively pointed out to us because it paints an even worse picture of Ahab. He's basically destroying Israel, the vineyard, and trying to make it more like Egypt, a vegetable patch. There's nothing wrong with veggies, that's fine, but it's the symbols. And if you're a Jewish person reading this, my, my sense is you'd probably get this. The point is Ahab's trying to take Israel in completely the wrong direction. I think that's, that's the, uh, the real image to bear in mind here. There's an even bigger problem though, and as Philip pointed out in the kids' talk, the reason that Naboth refuses to sell, even though it's actually a pretty reasonable offer from Ahab, um, it is against God's law for, uh, for Naboth to sell it. King Ahab should have known this. After all, he's the king, it's his job to know the law and to uphold the law and actually enforce the law. And so have a look, verse 3, Naboth says... The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. The inheritance of my ancestors. 
He's pointing to many parts of God's law that God gave Israel, basically saying, actually, God is the owner of this land. Um, You're all just tenants. You get to live here. Uh, God allocates the land family by family, and it's not supposed to be bought and sold. The idea in God's law, actually, because God's law is very good, uh, the idea seems to be that that would prevent people like Ahab, the rich, going around, buying up all the land, and generation by generation becoming richer while others get poorer. That wasn't how Israel was supposed to work. The prosperity of the land was for all of God's people to share in. From generation to generation, it was supposed to be a great system. The other major problem here, which is very obvious when you have someone point out to you perhaps, is that Ahab is breaking the Tenth Commandment. Now, don't put up your hands, uh, but do you actually know what the Tenth Commandment is? I had to think about this one a little bit. Do you know the Tenth Commandment that God gave Israel? Here it is. Uh, This is the Tenth Commandment, one I often sort of uh, skip over or forget. This is from Exodus. Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, I point that out, like, coveting is, is basically desiring something that belongs to someone else. Uh, it's not something we talk about much in uh, modern life, uh, in, in the church. And maybe we should, actually, maybe we should think a bit more of this about, uh, about coveting, because it is an issue of our heart, isn't it? The things we desire. Uh, and our modern world makes that particularly complicated and difficult, because well, advertising and social media, the whole point of it seems to be supercharging the kind of desires of our heart. I think this is perhaps a bigger challenge for us than we're even aware of sometimes. So this might be a good thing to chat about more in uh, your growth groups during the week or around the heater a bit later over coffee. How do we know if we are coveting? Uh, What does godly contentment look like in a world where you can have it all? Uh, They're good things for us to explore and we'll, we'll perhaps come back to that another day. Today though, what strikes me about this opening exchange in this, in, in this chapter is Naboth's great integrity. He could have got a vineyard upgrade out of this. He had to also say no to a very powerful and very dangerous man. It's not a great strategy to get ahead in the world saying no to powerful people. Uh, but clearly, for Naboth, getting ahead in the world isn't what mattered most. It's very clear what matters most to him is honouring God, even if it costs him everything. As Philip pointed out in the kids' talk, I think it's fair to assume Naboth probably knew there was great danger, a great risk that comes with saying no to a terrible king like Ahab. Like, we don't know for sure. But even still, his integrity is flawless, isn't it? And I'm sure as you sort of read about someone with such great integrity, it's always a bit of a challenge personally. The kind of resolution to do what is right by God, no matter who it is we have to disappoint in order to do that. Having integrity, no matter what opportunities we might have to pass on, no matter how much it might cost us personally. Integrity like Naboth is, I think, something to really aspire to. And again, that's a good thing to chat about more uh, later in the weeks in your growth groups. We'll just park Naboth for a second. We'll come back to him in a moment because the story then sort of uh, really switches focus back to King Ahab. Uh, Naboth turns Ahab down. He tells him he's dreaming, uh, to quote from the castle. And here, as a fully grown adult, uh, the sovereign ruler of a country... Ahab goes home like a toddler with a big temper tantrum, as if he's been told, no, you can't have another cookie. He's such a sook, isn't he? He even refuses to eat. Um, And again, it gives you great contrast, doesn't it, to Naboth's great integrity, an upstanding man. And here we have a temper tantrum from the king. You can only sort of imagine the kind of tweets he's sending out in a huge huff. It's such a poor picture of leadership, isn't it? And uh, it gets worse as he gives his wife uh, the approval to go and kill poor, innocent Naboth. And I think that's the point here. 
King Ahab is absolutely terrible. It's one of the main things we've seen all through this series, is just how disappointing God's kingdom becomes under the kings. It started so well with Solomon. Uh, It started so well. And that kind of makes it even more disappointing when Solomon fell and when it all went wrong. And as we read through 1 Kings, you kind of see it just feels like it's getting from from bad to worse. And the problem with all of that that decline, if you remember, is the thing that hangs over 1 Kings, the grand statement that God made, the promise God made to David, that God would establish a throne for David that would never end. That promise hangs over 1 Kings, and you think, how is that going to work? The kings are getting worse and worse. It's not looking good. I've got a bit of a map here for you to, just to help you remember or um, just to sort of see how this works. Uh, as we get to this part of 1 Kings, the, it's in two, the kingdom's in two parts. Uh, the green bit is up where all this is happening. Ahab and Elijah, they're all up uh, in the green part, Israel. Uh, David's line are ruling from Jerusalem down in the south, in the, the orange part, the red part, uh, ruling out of uh, in Judah. It's interesting, like uh, in Judah, some of David's descendants, they're not bad kings. Uh, But here in the north, in the green part, they're all absolutely terrible. And as a bit of a spoiler alert, um, as you keep reading through uh, to two kings, we end up with both kingdoms, the north and the south, are conquered. Uh, First, Israel in the north by Assyria, and then later, Judah by Babylon. The question you have to think uh, as you're reading 1 Kings is, how did it end up like that? These two kingdoms, well, supposed to be one kingdom for a start, they're God's people, it's God's kingdom. How do they end up conquered, disposed, dispossessed of their land, and exiled in Babylon? 1 Kings, here in chapter 21, I think gives us a big part of the answer to that. Ahab, I think, is exhibit A, that the kings, the kings of Israel, are really to blame. They fail miserably. They end up like Ahab, self-interested. Uh, they, they're free and loose with who they worship and uh, for whatever reason, they just they worship whatever God they can find. They clearly don't care for their people and they ignore God and His law. And even if occasionally down in Judah a good king comes along, usually his son is terrible. What was supposed to be the kingdom of God? What, what was supposed to be like a place where people uh, would be nourished and blessed, uh, they would be able to worship God and, uh, and know Him? That could even be a blessing to the nations around. That was supposed to happen, and it becomes an embarrassment, an absolute disaster. And it's like the author of 1 Kings wants us to know that for the kingdom of God to be like this, to be good, we actually need a better king, a very different type of king. Uh, not someone who follows their own self-interest. We need someone actually more like Naboth. Uh, someone who steps into harm's way because of their integrity before the Lord. Yes, We need a king like Jesus. We need a king like Jesus, who actually, as we read this story, we realise shares some uncommon, uh, uncanny things in common with Naboth. Jesus is the king who can actually rule the kingdom in a way that will be a blessing to the people and to the nations. But let's have a look at uh, how that sort of plays out as we keep looking through this passage. So from verse 7, Jezebel takes charge. Uh, And yes, we've we've met her before in this series. She's She's terrible. She's all around terrible. Um, she is the one who uh, first introduced um, Ahab and the Israelites into the worship of Baal. And uh, she's already killed lots of God's prophets. And she's tried to kill Elijah, the prophet, uh, as well. She actually kind of makes Ahab look good, uh, which is quite a difficult thing, I think. Uh, when you get to verse 7, she says to Ahab, Look, have something to eat, cheer up, I'll get the vineyard for you. You know it's not going to be good. Uh, you know she's not going to just go out and negotiate kindly. Uh, Ahab knows, I think 
she's going to go and kill him. And sure enough, she does have a diabolical plan. She uh, sends the letters to the leaders of Naboth City, uh, basically telling them to make sure he's murdered. Uh, the fact that they do this, and the, sorry, the, the leaders of Naboth City, the fact they carry out her plans and just in broad daylight basically uh, murder this guy, it shows how corruption really does run all through Israel at this point. As they say, uh, the fish rots from the head down. When the king goes bad, the rest of the nation follows. Now, as I sort of recount for us uh, these verses here, how Naboth was killed, I just want to point out some of those uncanny similarities that Naboth has with Jesus. Uh, First of all, it was a plot. It was planned by the leaders of the country, just like for Jesus. It was very public. Uh, The whole town were there as Naboth was, um, as this went out with Naboth, and just like with Jesus, the whole crowd were involved. Uh, False witnesses are brought forward for Naboth, accusing him of treason and of blasphemy, just as false witnesses came and accused Jesus of trying to uh, rebel against Caesar and blaspheming God. False witnesses. Naboth is taken outside of the city and killed uh, brutally with no dignity and with no fair trial, just like Jesus. The crowd uh, and all the rulers, I think, are standing there thinking, problem solved, he's dead, let's move on. It's true for Naboth and for Jesus. Have a look at verse 15 there. It's a very strange way, I think, that Jezebel shares the news with Ahab. She says, Naboth is no longer alive, but dead. It's a strange sentence, isn't it? You could probably just say one of those things, not both of them. Point is, he's no longer a problem. We got away with it. And so Ahab goes and takes possession of what he wanted all along. Happy days for Ahab, we, we might think. Or he might think. See, in our experience of the world, we, we know this kind of corruption is everywhere. Um, I think in Australia, we're thankfully spared from this kind of, the worst kind of cases of corruption like this. But we still do see it here in our daily lives, don't we? Uh, people getting ahead at the expense of others. Uh, those who are, are never able to get ahead because the odds are kind of stacked against them and others keep making it worse for them. As far as we can see, in uh, most, of the, most of the things we observe, just injustice just seems to go unchecked. I'm sure uh, all of us at different points would uh, strongly identify with um, the psalmists, with the prophets, people like Job, who all ask in their own ways, they cry out to God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do dodgy people keep getting away with it? Uh, For some of us, this this might be a major issue we have with God right now. Why does God allow this to happen? See, if the story of Naboth had just finished there, with the corrupt getting away with it, well, firstly, it wouldn't be much of a story, would it? Perhaps just another uh, uh, headline in our news feed. But that's not where this story finishes. And we see that God acts in this instance to bring justice. And more than that, we're, we're pointed through Naboth to Jesus and to the character of God. And I think this story gives us every confidence that uh, God will bring justice. God will bring justice, even if we don't see it yet. And we'll see as well how to live in a world that is unjust, with confidence that God is good to us. See, I think the key for us in this story is to notice the biggest similarity between Naboth and Jesus. And I'll just take a few moments to explain what I think that similarity is. Uh, Naboth has made a big deal about his inheritance, uh, his vineyard being his inheritance, back in verse 3. I want to take us to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, and you can turn there if you like in your Bibles. Hebrews 11 is page 1831, 1831, I'll have it on the screen as well for us. 
Uh, this part of Hebrews explains that the heroes of the Old Testament, they live with faith. Uh, not just that God would give them prosperity and justice in this world, they had faith that they would be blessed in, into eternal life. Now, Naboth isn't mentioned in Hebrews by name, but I think he belongs here. I think he belongs in this chapter. Have a look with me. There's Hebrews 11 from verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance, uh, there's that key word, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made, it, uh, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is, Abraham knew his inheritance wasn't really a patch of the promised land. It's the eternal life in the presence of God that he was really looking forward to. Have a look as well. Here's from verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And down in verse 16, here's the point I want to make about Naboth. He was longing for a better country, a heavenly one. I think that Naboth, uh, even, even more than being a man of principles and integrity, I think Naboth was a man of faith. He didn't tie himself uh, and his actions entirely to this world, where there does seem to be no justice. He tied himself entirely to the promises of God, even though it cost him everything. By faith, I think Naboth trusted that his, in, in, his eternal inheritance uh, was a great gift from God, far better than any vineyard. In fact, that very odd phrase that Jezebel used to describe his death, he is no longer alive, he's dead, it strikes me because it's kind of the inverse of how the gospel, the good news, is presented. That wonderful phrase, Jesus is no longer here, he is risen. Jesus is not dead, he's alive. And I think the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that Naboth was right. He was right to trust that God would right all wrongs. See, I think Jesus is just like Naboth in this way. Jesus endured the worst injustice imaginable uh, because he knew that the bigger picture was far more important. Uh, Hebrews 12 goes on uh, and it uh, picks up and it sort of amplifies what we've just read in Hebrews 11 by showing that Jesus' way is our way too. So Hebrews 12, at the end of verse 2, is a great great passage about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Jesus, eternal life, eternal glory, sharing in perfect relationship with his heavenly Father. Jesus had his eyes set on that all through his uh, ministry on earth. And we're called to be just the same as his disciples. I think that is a picture of the life of faith. Holding very loosely to the things of this world, things like vineyards. Uh, grieving injustice, for sure, but not despairing when we don't see justice. We will often have to bear injustice ourselves. But if our eyes are fixed on eternity, we can do that with grace. We can do it with patience, not seeking revenge in this world. We should, we should stand up to the Ahabs of our world. We should seek justice but then not blame God when things don't go the way we think they should, when we end up being crucified, uh, so to speak. It's for the joy set before us, we do all these things. 
a joy we might have now as perhaps uh, just a, a faint glimmer of uh, what we'll have in store for us in eternity. It's the eternal inheritance Jesus assures us is ours as we trust in Him. That really changes how we live now in an unjust world. It really helps us show patience and it helps us hold on to things very loosely that don't really matter ultimately. Things like property. Just as a thought experiment, like imagine losing your house out of loyalty to Jesus. That happens in some parts of the world for believers. It's a terrible thing for sure. I'm not saying we should be flippant about that. But we have a saviour in Jesus who urges us to fix our eyes, not on what's here, what's now, but on what is still before us. Eternal glory. Now, in our case, uh, we await justice, don't we? We're still awaiting for that day when God will deliver, uh, who will deliver justice as Jesus returns to rule and judge the world. In 1 Kings, though, God acts. He brings that judgment forward on Ahab and Jezebel. And it's a pretty confronting sentence that God passes, isn't it? Um, Our friend, the prophet Elijah, he's back on his horse after a bit of a sad patch uh, we saw last week. I've got some artwork here just to um, sort of show you what some person imagined uh, it was like when Elijah confronted um, Ahab and Jezebel, telling them to suffer in their jocks, uh, to uh, quote another great line from the castle. But Elijah, uh, he delivers God's message and he's saying really that Ahab doesn't get away with it. God saw it all and God is angry. That's such a horrific abuses of power from uh, the king. It's a confronting sentence that God, uh, God uh, speaks through Elijah, but it's actually a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing that God acts here because God is angry because he loves his people. He cares about Naboth. He doesn't just let it go. And so because God is a God of love, he does bring justice, even though that is confronting when we hear and see that. God, through Elijah, gives Ahab the sentence there will be death for him and for Jezebel, and actually at the end of his dynasty, his family will be cut off. As much as that's confronting, the author just points out again, verses 25 to 27, I think, just reminding us Ahab and Jezebel were actually the worst. They were terrible. They were evil. As if to say, perhaps Naboth is just the tip of the iceberg, just one body among many. And if you're especially concerned about the, the family kind of, uh, of Ahab being uh, caught up in his, in his judgment, it's worth perhaps pointing out that we don't read it in this passage, but in 2 Kings, uh, we find out in chapter 9, it wasn't just Naboth that they killed in this instance. They killed Naboth's sons as well. They're terrible. And so perhaps in a sense, there is some justice uh, in Ahab's descendants coming under uh, God's judgment as well. At one level, the punishment fits the crime, uh, the killing of the sons. But more than that, as we'll see in the final words of uh, 1 Kings, uh, as you sort of get to the final, uh, final uh, part of the next chapter, Ahab's own son Ahaziah was also just as bad as his father. Ahab's descendants were not innocent bystanders. They too were evil, just like Ahab. That is, they're not just caught up as innocent bystanders in God's judgment here. They too deserve his justice. But our passage today and, and our series on One Kings, I think it finishes on an extremely encouraging note. Encouraging note. Uh, it's about God's mercy. Uh, it's always uncomfortable hearing and, uh, and uncomfortable talking about God's judgment, I think. Because at the end of the day, who among us would be bold enough to say, well, I have not wronged anyone. I have not wronged God. The good news is, as much as God does bring justice, and that might make us initially nervous, 
the good news is that is his last resort. Uh, God's inclination all through 1 Kings, and here in this passage, God's inclination seems to be to show as much mercy as possible, even to Ahab. Isn't that something? Uh, God's word to him through Elijah, I think that that is a warning, uh, which is an act of mercy. God's warning is, repent while there's still time. There is still time for mercy for Ahab. And amazingly, Ahab does respond to God's warning. He humbles himself, as we see at the end of the chapter. Now, I'm going to be honest, I'm sceptical about his humbling, uh, his uh, sackcloth and ashes sort of uh, act. If you remember, Ahab was there on the mountain when Elijah called down fire from heaven. He has seemingly repented and turned back to God before, then goes back to his old ways. Thankfully for us, God responds to Ahab's act here, not with scepticism as I would, but with incredible mercy. That is a good thing, isn't it? Because how often does our humility before God actually last? It's easy to point the finger at Ahab, but how often does my contrition for sin last beyond a few moments? I think we can be very, very thankful that God is delighted in our attempts at humility before Him. See, God's inclination is to show mercy, incredible mercy, and delay the judgment of Ahab. He gives him still more chances, and I take it, still more chances for his children as well, to respond, to humble themselves before the Lord. Again, God's judgment on Ahab's sons, uh, it's not inevitable. Uh, Remember, um, they're just as bad as him. But by delaying his judgment, God gives more opportunity for them to return to him in repentance. And that is why God is delaying uh, his judgment of our world. God is delaying bringing justice as the last uh, uh, last possible action he takes, as long as he can, so that many will have time to turn to him and receive an eternal inheritance that will not perish or spoil or fade. So, in view of God's mercy, would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are really very, very thankful. Uh, We're thankful for your mercy. And we thank you for the way that uh, 1 Kings has continued to point us to the kingdom of your Son, Jesus, a glorious kingdom, a kingdom of justice and righteousness and wisdom. Please help us uh, to live as people of this kingdom, uh, full of joy and confident of uh, greater joy and peace. Uh, We know now through you, and we know that these are just the smallest tastes of what you have stored up for us into eternity. So please help us to live uh, with great integrity and with great patience. Please give us great hope and help us to hold on to the things of this world loosely with our eyes fixed firmly on the joy you have set before us. Please do continue to show great mercy to our world. And in the time you have given us, please help each one of us reach many with the good news of your grace and mercy. Amen.